Last summer, I took the family to Washington, D.C., and the uh, first night we were there, we ventured out onto the Capitol Mall, and we walked from the Washington Monument all the way to the Lincoln Memorial. And it was a powerful experience. Excuse me, I didn't expect to get affected by thinking about it. What I think most affected me was when we were walking up the steps to the Lincoln Memorial, there were, this was nine o'clock in the evening, it was getting dark, and the, the place was just mobbed. You had to thread your way through this this tangle of hundreds and maybe a couple thousand people around this memorial and all the all the lights were shining and the sun had set and what hit me was there's no security here no screening no machines no lines no fences, nothing. Now, I know it was there, but you couldn't see it. There wasn't the barrier keeping us out before we could kind of earn our way in. And it, it just hit me that all of these people were here in order and and in some sense of quiet, especially when you got into the Lincoln Memorial. And um, it was amazing. It was like going back in time when we didn't have to feel so secure. And Malcolm even said to me at one point, it's like, uh, it's like being on America's front lawn. We're all just here and enjoying it. That's liberty, that's freedom. That's glory. The glory of our nation is this freedom. And to be able to walk into that Lincoln Memorial and take the time to read the two great Lincoln speeches carved into the walls. It was glorious. It was powerful. In a sense, that vision and that participation together was a renewing thing for me, as I had hoped it would be. We all woke up on Monday morning to a very different kind of news. We spent some time praying about the victims and the families and the first responders in Las Vegas. We saw dark, wicked things work out there. And the contrast that hit me was, you don't have to have too many more of these kinds of big massacres in our country. 
before our glory starts to fade. And there's this sense in our nation, and long before the shootings last Sunday night, there's this sense in our nation of disillusionment, hostility, a sense that something is dying in our country right before our eyes, and a dimming of our glory as a free and law-abiding, caring, good people. And we have to face this morning this disillusionment. We have to face what is happening to our glory that it is fading and cannot do otherwise because all human glory in every nation at every time in all places, all glory fades. And our glory as a nation has faded before. It has faded worse than it is fading right now. And I think back to Lincoln himself and why that memorial was put there. It was put there because an entire generation of men, north and south, was decimated by the Civil War. And we wondered, Lincoln himself wondered, whether this great nation can long endure So we're confronting something in all of this disillusionment and hostility that is troubling. And there's a temptation at this moment to take hold of something and fix this situation. Put the glory back the way it's supposed to be in our minds. And the trouble is we can't agree on what that is. You talk to somebody from of what they call the right, the glory is going to be one thing. You talk to somebody from what they call the left, it's going to be something totally different. And so we're in this place where we should be responding to a human tragedy and, and to the, the destruction of human wickedness in a human way, and instead, we're, many of us are just responding in a, a sort of partisan fury. We're all single-issue voters now. It's just we can't agree on what the issue is. And so we're, we're watching this dimming of our glory as a nation, and especially for us as believers, or if you're here this morning, wondering what we might have to say in response to a situation like this. For us, the question is even deeper. Are we going to turn our eyes from the glory that must fade and put our eyes on the glory that never fades? That's the question. And here's the problem. The answer so far is, no, we won't. We're going to restore the human glory that we think is most important. 
Beloved, that answer is a disaster for our nation. And we are watching a vacating of the claims of Christ and the power of the gospel in American churches because of it. And again, I don't care where the answer comes from, whether it's the left's version of what that glory is supposed to be. Maybe they would take the word equality out of Lincoln's speeches and make that the most important principle. Or maybe if you talk to somebody from the right, they would take the word freedom out of Lincoln's speeches and make that the most important part of our glory. But whatever it is, this decision that we have made as a people, as Christians in America, to focus on trying to stop the fading of our glory. That focus is a disaster, and our job this morning is to turn from it, make a different decision. And we're talking about this in the context of a whole series dealing with disillusionment. And when we were, I was studying for this series, and when the staff and I were designing it and, and coming up with some of the questions that this would raise, like how can you nourish your hope when you're in a hostile environment? We had no idea at the time what kinds of events were going to come along. But God did, because we have a decision to make. And the decision is, what glory are you pursuing? You see, the glory of God ought to have and does have the same effect on us that the glory of monuments has. The glory of God is radiant. His justice, his goodness, his holiness, his grace shines upon us by his glory in Jesus Christ. And when that shines upon us and we get little glimmers of it, maybe it's like we just did in singing songs or maybe it's in being led in prayer by someone in the body. Whatever it is, when that glory shines upon us, it is a refreshing, nourishing thing. And Paul is talking about that glory with the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is addressing the disillusionment that the Corinthians have with him and a sense that um, he's not really who he said he was. There's the charge against Paul that he's two-faced or vacillating, doesn't keep his promises, that he's not sincere all of these kinds of things are in the air and have poisoned the relationship between the Corinthians and Paul. And we've been looking at this question. How does Paul respond to that kind of disillusionment? He talks about hope. And in particular, he talks about the glory of God that is the source of his hope. He's talked about the fact that even though he and the Corinthians are in a conflict, in difficulty, 
at that point in their relationship together. Their relationship is still real. And their relationship is going to grow. And by the grace of God, and in particular, because of the Spirit of God at work in them, they are going to change and they are going to reflect Jesus Christ more. And that is going to change because they, they, Paul and the Corinthians, are under the new covenant, not the old covenant. The new covenant is in the Spirit of God by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his resurrection. And that new covenant in the Spirit gives life. Whereas the old covenant under the law brought condemnation and death. And Paul says to these disillusioned Corinthians, we're in the Spirit of God. We have hope and confidence because we have life at work in us. And that life is going to grow and flourish because it comes with the glory of God. And the glory of the life that is in us by the power of the Holy Spirit is eternal. It is permanent. It is unfading. We are not a cut flower community set in a nice pretty vase but doomed over the course of hours to wilt and drop our blooms. That's not who we are. We are a garden with life and the flourishing grows and goes on and the blossoms continue to bloom, and the glory just grows. The glory of the covenant in the spirit is greater than the glory of the covenant of the law. And what he is going to say this morning is, that glory makes me bold. When I really get a grip on what the glory of God is doing, Paul says, in us, in our conflict, in our disillusionment with each other. When I get a sense of what the glory of God is doing there, I become very bold. I lose all shame. I lose all inhibitions. And I start saying things that you wouldn't say otherwise if you were afraid. Do you need boldness? I do. Because in this society, everybody's shrinking back and hiding. And the church is shrinking back. All across America, we're in this kind of crouched, defensive position. And it's wrong. Because we ought to have the boldness that comes from the glory of God. What kind of glory are you working on? If you're working on a fading glory, then when your glory fades, you lose heart, you become ashamed, disillusioned, and you go into retreat. What makes us bold? Working on big things. Big things. Frightening things. I love these pictures of construction workers on old skyscrapers, and I hate them at the same time because I just I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to eat my lunch on a steel beam hundreds of feet in the air. That's not for me. 
But this guy, whatever he's doing, he's probably smoking. I can't quite tell. Whatever he's doing, he is working on something big, and he knows what he is working on, and he can see the glory of the city in front of him, and it makes him bold enough to sit up there as if he were the king of the world. Let's recapture that. I'm going to talk with you this morning about the veil that has been removed by Jesus Christ in verses um, 12 through 16, and then we're going to talk about the difference that should make in our practice as a church, in our practice of Christianity, as we reform ourselves and purge this deadly fear and disillusionment from our hearts. So let's dive in. Paul is continuing to talk about the covenant of the law under Moses and the covenant in Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. And what he has just said, as we saw last week in the previous paragraph, is that the, the glory of the law of Moses was a fading glory, and he's going to continue to talk about that point. The glory in Christ in the Holy Spirit is a permanent, eternal glory. It is a lasting and greater glory. And so he starts off in verse 12 by saying, since we have such a hope, what hope? That we are not cut flowers in a vase. That we are not doomed to fade. That the glory of God, by his will and his power, is going to grow in us. Because we have that hope, we are very bold. He's going to dramatize his boldness in terms of Moses' veil. So we're going to look at this in some detail this morning and uh, consider what he means by this. So first of all, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 30. I believe. Let's look at the glory of the law and remind ourselves of the great truth that the law of God came with glory. What the Lord said in the Ten Commandments to Israel was glorious. And what he did in establishing the nation of Israel through the law of Moses was glorious. It came with power. It came with evidence of the beauty and radiance of God, and it looked like this. Uh, well, I've got to get to Exodus first. I was in Genesis 34. I'm sure it's a great chapter, but I would have got us off track. The glory looked like this. This is the second time that Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of stone, the testimony, the law of God written upon them. As he came down from the mountain, 
verse 29 of Exodus 34, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Now get this picture. Moses is up on that mountain in the presence of God. And his face, and he's very specific about this, the skin of his face was shining as he came down the mountain because he had been talking with God. Now think about how specific that is. If you have the cinematic version of this in your head, maybe you think of Moses as backlit. And so he's coming down the mountain, you kind of see the silhouette of him and... Ah. That's not what's happening. It's more like these lights that I shouldn't have looked at. I did this last week and <laughs> I didn't learn and now I can't see anything. It's more like these lights. Moses' skin was like a searchlight. It was like a spotlight coming out. His skin was radiating the glory of God. And so the light is coming from him directly from the presence of God. So Moses is the moon to Yahweh's sun. He is reflecting what God is radiating from his glorious character. And coming from the presence of God, think the greatness of this. Aaron and all the people, verse 30 saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They were backing away. I don't know about you, but if I enter a room and everybody starts backing away, I maybe want to check that I brushed my teeth or something. There's something wrong. He has no idea the effect that he's having on them, that his face has become a shining light. And so they, they back away, but, verse 31, Moses called them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. And all the while he's talking with them, this light is shining from his skin. This is glorious. What does this mean? This man came directly from the presence of God. That's what this means. And what that means is God is living with us. He's not out there. He is not distant from us. He is not cold. He is near to us. He is leading us. He is powerful in us. And we can see his glory. And we can have access through Moses to this glorious God who dwells with us. Now, th these are glorious, powerful things. So, um, afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. By the way, this is, this, this is the redo, because they've already heard all of this. He's commanding them the Ten Commandments that they already received from God's own voice. And they said, when they heard God's voice, make it stop or he's going to kill us. Moses, you speak for God. 
but hearing his voice is too much. So here is Moses speaking for God, radiating his glory. And when, verse 33, Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Why? Cut flowers, that's why. It's going to fade. And so that sense that God is speaking is coming from the glory that is shining from Moses' face. So Moses, when he leaves the presence of God and finishes speaking to the people, veils his face. Now, note this carefully, that when the word is being given, the face is unveiled and is shining and reflecting the glory of God. When the speaking from God stops, the veil comes. Now, keep that in mind. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. We're in the presence and we're out of the presence. In his presence, we gain God's glory. When we leave his presence, the glory starts to fade. And so the veil comes. What is this telling us? Moses himself, in recording all of this, is telling us that this was a temporary glory. In some sense, an inadequate situation where God is dwelling with his people, but there's something provisional about it. There's something not lasting about it. So let's go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a passage that uh, Paul has in mind and is referring to as he writes 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, verse 12, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of of what was being brought to an end. It's a lengthy phrase. Why does Moses put the veil on his face? Let's work it backward. The glory of that moment where he was in the presence of God, that glory is being brought to an end. It's fading. And so there, with that, Moses does not want the people to see that fading glory. He wants to, them to see it renewed and renewed, and renewed. And so he goes back and back and back into the tabernacle. Every time he speaks with God, he comes out, the glory is renewed, and it fades, the veil goes on. And Paul is saying, since we have such a hope, what hope? Unfading glory. The glory not of the cut flowers in the vase, the glory of the garden that lives since we have such a hope, we're very bold. We don't put the veil over our face. Why? Because glory doesn't fade. Glory just keeps growing. Now let me ask you once again, what glory are you pursuing? 
what are you working on in your life? If it is a fading glory, then there is only one thing ahead of you, and that is loss of hope and disillusionment. We can't live that way. I can't. We have the things of God and the gospel, and life is often so discouraging that even those things are work for me to appropriate on many days. Maintaining hope is difficult. I don't know how you're going to do it if the glory you're pursuing that is supposed to refresh you is a fading glory that's going to die. I don't know how you do it. I don't think you can. I think you need to change glory. I think you need to pursue another radiance. And so Paul says, we're not following a fading glory. We're following the permanent glory of the Holy Spirit. Before we go on, let me just remind you that Israel is not put in the Bible because the Jewish people are so different from us. Israel is put in the Bible so that we will read the scriptures and say, you know, we're just like them. They're not different from us. They are a mirror of who we are. And so you have this strange situation where American Christians could read this passage and it gets sort of condescending toward Israel and the Israelites instead of recognizing ourselves in this picture and saying, this is what we are doing. We're shrinking back, we're disillusioned, we're following fading glory, and we need to follow the permanent glory. We're doing everything that has happened in the past. Next thing we need to pick up from this paragraph, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. What does he mean by this? He's talking about the present in the first century at that time. And he says, the veil's still there. It's never been taken away. So what, what you notice here is that there's a change. When Moses spoke the words of God, there was no veil. His face was shining, and the glory of God was was radiating out upon the people. But he's saying this has changed. Now, when the word of God is read from the law, it is done covered, veiled. He may be referring here to a, a practice of reading the scriptures with a head covering. That may be what he has in mind, but he is, in any case, turning it into a metaphor. He's saying... That veil is there covering the glory of God in the law. Now let me double back here. 
if you think that the law is bad and the Old Testament represents the bad God, if you think that that is what is meant by the coming of grace in Jesus Christ, you got the wrong take on the Old Testament. Paul is saying here, it comes with glory. That means it is expressing the goodness and glory of God. So, Paul is saying here, when the law is read and the standards of the Ten Commandments come out upon the people, the glory is now shut off. The glory of God's character in those Ten Commandments is blocked. Why? Because the commandments are bad? No. Because there's something in the hearts of the hearers that is blocking it, veiling it. And then, when the words of the law describing sacrifices and atonement for sin, when those words are read saying, I will dwell with you, Israel. I will continue to live in your midst. And so perform these sacrifices as, for instance, on the Day of Atonement, which just passed, by the way. If, if you look at all of that, when all of those words are read, he says the glory of God in the law is now veiled because of what is over the hearts of the listeners. And how do you take that veil away? He says, only through Christ is that veil removed. And so, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Think about that. That means that the glory of the law is in saying, here is righteousness, and you are, in this standard, accounted as a sinner. And here is sacrifice for sin. And under this sacrifice, you are accounted clean. That's the law. That's all of it in a nutshell. You sin, there is blood. In your sin, you are unclean. Under the blood of the sacrifice, you are clean. And what he is saying here is, only through Christ is that veil removed. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled the moral law of God. He is not a sinner. And secondly, by his blood, he has made us clean. The law is satisfied. Everything that the law pointed for in Jesus Christ, done, finished, complete. And the salvation in Jesus Christ is permanent. And what he is about to say is that when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Who is the Lord, we wonder? So you mean Jesus? Well, he certainly means that partially, but he's very specific. Verse 17, now the Lord is who? The Spirit. Think about that. 
the God on Mount Sinai who spoke to Moses. And Moses comes away from that encounter with his skin radiating the glory of God. That God now lives in us. So all of that presence that was external, it is now internal in the body of Christ, the church. Why? Because he died and rose again. There is this animating glory of God in the church through the power of the Spirit. And Paul says, yeah, I I know we got some problems. We're disillusioned with each other. And we've had a period here, Corinthians, where we're going back and forth in conflict. But understand this, because I have such a hope in the power of God, I am very bold. I will say all sorts of things to you because I know that the Spirit of God in you is going to shed glory as the Word of God goes out and the Spirit of God in me is going to shed glory as the Word of God goes out. That makes me bold. Let's think about this boldness. It's very different from the glory that we are pursuing as a country, whether it's the glory of wealth or the glory of nationalism or the glory of equality, there is always something that mars the glory, always. It must fade. It must be renewed. What we have to decide is, aren't we really pursuing the wrong thing and pursuing cut flowers instead of going into the garden. So let's think about how how does this change our practice as Christians in America? How ought it to change the way we behave? Well, there's a very simple question we can ask. How did it change Paul's practice? How did he apply this principle? It's very simple. Let me um, let me look at a question I've got here. Jesus's glory was also veiled for a time. Matthew seventeen two. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. It's a great insight. When Jesus came into this world, his glory was veiled. He didn't come with all of his radiance. He came as a man with nothing in particular in his appearance or his background to recommend him. That's very important for us. Very good insight. Okay. How does this change Paul's practice? Let me give you three things. First way that he applies this idea of boldness is sincerity. You might be thinking, Pastor, that's kind of anticlimactic. We should be like world beaters now. You should be giving us the sermon how we're going to change the world, and uh, because we're so bold, we're just going to take over. And instead, first thing you say is, we'll be sincere. Well, I, I can understand the disappointment, I guess, But 
it's a question of whether you want to per pursue grandiose fantasies about what the church of Jesus Christ is going to achieve in this world. And if you want to pursue that, that means you're giving your heart over to a glory that is fake. Or whether you want to pursue the glory of God that starts with a man, Jesus, whose glory is veiled and unrecognizable and grows and grows and grows, multiplies, radiates more, grows and grows and grows. Depends what you want. If you want to be the world beaters who change everything in society and take our country back for Jesus and all of this kind of thing, that's what you want to be. God bless you and good luck. You'll need it. That is not the glory that the New Testament offers. The glory is it'll grow. It'll start small and it'll grow and it'll gain power and little by little the light will shine. Here's uh, how Paul works this out. We start with the small, simple thing of sincerity. Chapter 2, verse 17. Part of Paul's boldness is that he simply says what he means. 2.17, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. So what does Paul's boldness do with him? He stops all of the game playing, all of the salesmanship of a peddler, somebody whose job it is, is to stop traffic and get you to buy what they're selling and to bargain with you and to dicker with you so that you buy into whatever their thing is, whatever their product is. He says, we're going we're gonna to drop all that game playing. The thing I notice most about our culture in response to tragedy is that we, we cannot grieve as a culture. We go immediately into peddling. We peddle our views on this issue and we compete with the other views on that other issue and we're, we're trying to dominate the discussion for how this matter should be interpreted in our life and in our culture. Nonsense. Game playing. Pretense. Has nothing to do with what is going on around us, which is a human tragedy that is a result of the destruction of sin. It's a very simple thing. And in trying to put a political spin on all of this, things like the Las Vegas shooting, whatever it may be, pick your issue, pick your tragedy. We're instantly peddling some position. Paul says we've stopped that. Now, he used to do that. Paul was a great activist. He was indefatigable. You couldn't hardly stop the guy. But he stopped being an activist, stopped being a peddler, 
and started to speak as a man of sincerity. And it went something like this. I, as a Jew, am representing a sinful nation condemned under the law of Moses, promised salvation by the sacrifices. And as those sacrifices and the law are fulfilled in Christ, I, as a sinner, the chief of sinners, am saved. That's sincerity for Paul. And that becomes his message. So he says, we were commissioned by God, so I speak as if God is talking to me, giving me the message to say, and watching to make sure I say it the way he wanted it said. Done. How you receive it, what you think of it, not my problem, Paul says. I am saying what God told me to say. And so he says it openly. And he says, that's boldness. Now, friends, if we if we could start measuring our boldness by our sincerity like that, if we could use Paul's standard of what boldness is, can you imagine what we would achieve? It would be amazing to see the power of the Spirit work as we stop playing games and simply start confessing who we are in Jesus Christ, sinners saved. Second thing that Paul says this does to his practice is it makes him open. Um, you might wonder, how is openness different from sincerity? Isn't sincerity just openness by another name? The way Paul describes it here is slightly different. He's talking about his candor about the Word of God and what it says. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 4. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I want you to see what he says because he's just talked about the boldness that he has in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, oh, I can't let that go. What ministry? The ministry of declaring the permanent glory. And he has that ministry by what? By dint of having achieved it? No, his sincerity comes through and he says, I have it by the mercy of God. I have it because I am a sinner and don't deserve to have it. But in Christ, it has been given to me. That's the kind of ministry we have. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. We look out at the world and we look at everything that happens. Our expectations are fully met. There's trouble, there's conflict, there's difficulty, there's fading glory all over the place. But in the Spirit of God, there is this growing radiance of the glory of Jesus Christ. And that expectation is not disappointed. We do not lose heart. But we have renounced, notice the strength of that word, to renounce something is almost to say, may I be cursed if I go back to this. It's a powerful thing. We have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. Strong words. And what would these disgraceful, underhanded ways be? 
we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But with the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So we've got the scriptures here, Paul says. Our job is to open up all of the scriptures, even the unpopular bits. And there are many of those. And so we give an open declaration of what that says, and we do it in such a way that our sincerity as sinners saved by grace is evident in the way we declare the scriptures. And in our open declaration of it, we're standing on what God says. The glory of God through the Holy Spirit shines through his word and... It has exactly the effect that God wants it to have. It's going to save some people and others. It's going to be veiled until such time as he changes that. So what does this mean? Um, Paul is going to be a straight shooter, as we would say. He's, he's not going to mess around or, like a peddler again, try to, try to strategize. Here's the part that I think people will buy. So we'll sell them that. We'll sell them what they want. If they want positive thinking, that's what we'll sell them. If they want us to condemn the people outside the church for all of those sins that they commit out there, we'll sell them that too. Peddlers. So what Paul says here is we've renounced all of it. Maybe we'd be cursed if we go back to that. So we're going to declare openly what the whole word says. That's boldness. Again, if we started measuring boldness by Paul's standards of sincerity and openness, giving out, first of all, the scriptures, not the things that we want to say, but the word of God, if we were to give that out openly and sincerely, as sinners saved by grace, what do you think we would achieve in the power of the Holy Spirit? We would see the glory of God grow. Lastly, this changes his practice or affects his practice by what he focuses on in relation to the Corinthians and in relation to all the other churches he dealt with. Here is Paul's final appeal to the Corinthian church having talked about his attitude toward them as they are disillusioned with him. It's a powerful thing. He appeals for their trust. Chapter 7, verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us. What a thing. What a thing to say to somebody who is attacking you. Do you feel attacked by the attitude that you perceive in mainstream culture toward Christians? Do you feel assaulted, made fun of? Well, Paul felt those things and worse. And his response is to argue from hope to trust. And he says, here's the hope we have, the boldness and openness we have. Corinthians, make room in your hearts for us. 
We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you. For I said before that you are in our hearts. To die together and to live together, I am acting with great boldness toward you. Notice that. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. Listen, you can have this life that Paul is describing here where all of your personal conflicts and the disillusionment you face daily is renewed, refreshed, and your hope nourished and your glory in Jesus Christ growing. You can have this. But you have to stop pursuing the fading things and start pursuing the eternal glory of Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. These practices are some of how we do that. Drop the game playing, open the scriptures, even the parts that we don't like, confer with each other, and rebuild trust. When we do that, we're going to see the glory of the Holy Spirit grow and nourish us. I have... Um, looks like one more question here or a comment since Christ is in us should not others thank you should not others who come in contact with us also be transformed when in our presence yes if Christ lives in us then when we go from this place, if we have experienced the ministry of the Holy Spirit here, and I think we have, if we've experienced that, then we're going out like Moses and our skin is shining and people should be changed by that. They should encounter that safe, open, sincere trustworthiness. And in encountering that, start to ask, what is it that gives them that hope, that confidence? Uh, so the answer to that um, is yes. Make room in your hearts. Is this to be compared with, behold, I stand at the door and knock? Um, possibly. Um, behold, I stand at the door and knock is Jesus saying, I'm out here. Are you going to let me in, world? And uh, this is not uh, to an individual's heart. Uh, this is the church with Jesus knocking on the front door, as it were. And the question there is, church, are you going to let Jesus in? It's a powerful question. Because, church, there's no way you're going to get through the persecutions to come described in the book of Revelation, without Jesus in your church. Um, so make room in your hearts. Where it is comparable is this. We find that um, 
we, we are con continually brought back to this question. Will you commit trust to someone else? Will you have the boldness, first of all, to trust Jesus Christ? To do what he has said he will do for you, cleanse you from your sins and give you new life. And then, you're not done. Will you have the boldness to make room in your hearts and build trust with other people? And that's where the whole Christian life kind of falls apart in our hands. Because we're only too happy to trust Jesus, but when he calls upon us to build trust with each other, that's when we say, no, Lord, don't send me. <laughs> I don't speak very well, as someone once said. So I, I think there is a, a worthwhile comparison there. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we call upon your name together. We are your body. We have been called by your grace. And we are filled with your Holy Spirit. And so as we call upon your name now, we ask that you would capture our attention with the radiance of your glory and that you would show us that this glory lives in us. Send us from this place with that glory upon us and coming through us Change hearts around us, we pray. We are much in need of your grace, goodness, and unfading glory. So we call upon your name to give it, and we pray it all in your name. And God's people said, Amen.